Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. Uh, welcome. Thank you, guys. So a um, couple of things before I forget. We very rarely do announcements, but I do have one today. And that is that we will not be meeting next Sunday night. So I know that's unusual for most churches to ever cancel Sunday night. But again, for us, discipleship occurs in the focus groups. And that's really where we want to put our energies. Um, So there's two reasons. One of them I can blame on someone else and one I can't. So I'm going to be honest and also blame it on everybody else. Um, So actually, my wife and I have this amazing opportunity um just a, a, a couple months ago my wife has always she had an opportunity once to go to hawaii without me and ever since then she's wanted for us to go back together again that's an expensive trip but we have friends there that we can stay with they may even be on zoom right now um and uh but Anne was online and with all the travel stuff happening uh she was able to find round trip tickets per person for 250 bucks each oh my god yeah yeah so we did we bought those tickets um so that i will be in hawaii next week i thought about just zooming in from there but let's be honest i'll be in hawaii next week (laughs) yeah yeah i would want to see you anyway that's right what are you doing there Um, Uh, however i could have gotten with the other story which is also true which is that uh paragon needs this space next week so um so i could have just said that but i thought i'd share with you also that i will so uh that means a couple of other things one is i don't always do the the second sunday of the month sometimes i don't do a teaching we just do communion but since we're going to not be here next week i'm going to go ahead and do a teaching tonight we'll do communion in two weeks um on august but i wanted to wrap up our our two-parter in the midst of our long several parter of foundations so last week we started talking about the gospel or the fulfillment of the promise and the plan and we talked about kind of the overview of kind of everything that's happening tonight we want to talk a little bit about the details and having said that what i want to do is i want to say that when you start talking about the gospel it is just so infinite and it's so deep and it's so rich and it's so beautiful there are so many ways to talk about it i think you know, if you if you ask people to describe the gospel, there's a lot of descriptions of it. And the reality is the stories that we tell are simply the ways that we can come up with to best capture this incredible cosmic thing that's happened. And I say all that to say that even though this is called the details tonight, there's going to be a lot that I'm not going to cover, all right? Um, and a lot that I don't understand. But what I do want to do is kind of hit the, the basic idea of what we call salvation tonight. So we, we, you know, we talked about the fact already that the gospel is not only uh, about us, that the gospel is a big cosmic plan, which, which is about the unity of all things under Christ. It's the redemption of the entire universe, everything getting put back together, integrated under the God of the universe, and that is true. But for us personally, there's such a, a you know, the idea of salvation is a big part of the gospel. It makes sense that we would be invested in that and want to talk about it. It's also not completely um, wrong to emphasize it that way, because as we talked about a few weeks ago, even the angels long to look into these things. The idea of redeemed human beings, that God went so far to do it, that he gave up everything, that he died on the cross in order to bring us salvation is in itself just an amazing thing. And if angels long to look into it, then how can we not? 
And so what I want to do tonight, hopefully, is to maybe for some of you, there will be some clarification, because I think there is some confusion about some things we're going to talk about tonight. And again, we're going to try to stick on the things that I feel really confident are in scripture um, and try not to get off on tangents too much. Um, so we're going to talk about, hopefully, there'll be some clarification. But I also hope that there will just be a little bit of awe. And I have to trust the Holy Spirit to do that. I, I'm not sure I can produce. I can produce, by the way, I've spoken long enough. I can produce an artificial sort of awe, but that's not what I want to produce tonight. I hope that, that you can begin to get a glimpse into how amazing this is and that you'll be stirred up to look more into the gospel because there's no better pursuit than that. And I really believe that. So let's just talk. Let's break it down a little bit. What does this salvation look like? What are the details? How does this kind of work out? And let's, let's again, we're going to hit the high spots and, and it'll kind of be, even though I call it details in itself, it's still going to be a little bit big picture, but we're going to hit what we can in the short time that we have tonight. Just by way of example, I actually do a, uh, for many, many years, I did a conference, I still do as it comes up now and then, but not as often, um, which is 10 hours over some of the elements of the gospel. Um, and an hour on just one of the topics that's in here tonight, an hour and a half, to be honest. So we're not doing that tonight, but I'm just letting you know there's a lot more here to, to get. So understand, we're just touching the tip of things, but even the tip is so beautiful and full that I hope it will matter to you. Way too noisy. Okay. So salvation. First thing I want to do is, is what is salvation? What does it really mean? What is the scripture referring to when it talks about our salvation? And in this case, I think what it means in the gospel, it means a promise of complete redemption in Christ for the wicked. And I, and I want to walk through that a little bit. First of all, it's a promise of complete redemption. It's not a promise of partial redemption. It's not a halfway deal. It's not a negotiation where he gets us off to a good start and we finish the rest on our own. It's not a hand up. It is in many ways a handout. It is the whole package. It is complete redemption. Now, this is hard for us to believe because many of us, as we're going to see later, that complete redemption, the whole totality of it has not yet happened. We're in process. But the redemption, the salvation is a promise of complete redemption. The other reason I think it's hard for us is because let's be perfectly honest. None of us in this life have ever experienced a victory, a joy, a gift, which didn't end up being on some level, in some way, a little bit disappointing. It just, it is what it is, you know? They, there's, there's things that happen and they just don't reach that level. We, we seek that happy ending. There's a theory out there, by the way, of, of why we cry at happy movies. People are like, why, why do we cry when we're happy? Why do we cry at happy movies? One of the most depressing theories about it, which, which nonetheless may be accurate, is it's because there's a part of us that knows that such happiness is a myth. <laughs> That we watch happiness in a movie and we're like, they live happily ever after. And part of us is like, well, we know that doesn't exactly work out that way. It doesn't mean there isn't true happiness. It doesn't mean that we can't enjoy things. I mean, certainly hope we do. And it doesn't mean that there aren't good gifts. I believe God gives us things we should be grateful for and should relish and should immerse ourselves in. But the reality of the fallen world is everything comes with a tinge of sorrow and pain and struggle and entropy, right? We're used to good things not lasting. So when we hear a promise of complete redemption, our tendency, our temptation is to water that now and to think, well, maybe it's not as good. Maybe it's not everything that we were told it was. So I want to start there. Salvation is a promise of complete redemption, inside, outside, past, present, future, all the way along the line, your entire being, your entire person, your entire life 
all being 100% completely redeemed. And of course, in Christ. It's really important. The gospel tells us that our complete redemption doesn't come through our efforts. It doesn't come through what we do. It doesn't come from thinking right. It doesn't come from being self-actualized or enlightened. It doesn't come from all these other things. It's in Christ. Our redemption comes through Christ, through the grace of God, which is opened up for us through Christ. And I want to be really clear about this last part, too. It's a complete redemption. It's a promise of complete redemption in Christ for the wicked. This is so important because, again, we have a tendency in ourselves to think that we just, it's, it's so easy to fall back to a place every now and then where we subtly think that there's a reason that God redeemed us and it has something to do with us. <laughs> that there's something we did, some moment of humility, some moment of reaching out to God, some moment of faith, which God said, that got my attention. You are worthy of my redemption. But the reality is God looked at all of mankind and said, there is no one who seeks me, not even one. That's what Paul tells us in Romans. There was nobody that reached out to me, not even one. The author of Hebrews tells us even our faith is a gift from God. Without it, we would not even be able to receive the gift. And then God looks and he says, in this sense, in one sense, there is nobody who's gotten my attention and made themselves worthy of my redemption. And then God looks and says, but nonetheless, I count them all worthy of redemption. So Jesus made it really clear. This is a point Jesus was particularly sticky about, by the way. When he walked to the earth and people would come to him and say, why do you hang out so much with the sinners? Why do you hang out with the wicked? Why do you seem to give them so much time? He repeatedly would say in many different ways, those are the people I am here for. If you don't count yourself among those in need of redemption, then I guess I'm not here for you. There is something about the recognition of our need that, that, that makes us possible to receive it. Think back to our bank account that we talked about last week. This idea that, that Tim could give you $100 million in a bank account, and you don't earn it. You don't do something to make that account exist. You simply believe me when I tell you that happened. Believe Tim Cook when he gives you that money, and you say yes to the account. But one of the reasons you might not say yes to the account is if you already had $90 billion in the bank. If you have $90 billion in the bank, you might even just forget about this $100 million account from Tim Cook. You might be like, I, what, whatever, what, oh yeah, that's like, that's like money in the sofa, I forgot it was there, right? So if you didn't think you need it, you might not worry about it. Or how about this? What if you don't have $90 billion, but you're deluded and you think you do? What if you think you have $90 billion and then you get off of this $100 million account and you're like, I don't need it. What if you have an account which has $4.56 in it and you think it has $400 billion in it? And then Tim Cook comes to you and says, I have an account here with $100 million in it, but I need you to close that account in order for me to give you this account. Well, it really depends on whether you think you need that or not, doesn't it? Because if you think, well, I got $400 billion, I don't want to close that to get your $100 million. And that's where Tim Cook might say to you, you'd be a lot happier if you realized how poor you actually were. That's what Jesus says. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. For they shall receive the kingdom of God. So that is what we have here is salvation is a promise of complete redemption not for those who are pretty good, not for those who are halfway there, not for those who've made some effort, 
Not for those who have stuck around at the right time, at the right place. Not for those who showed up. For the wicked. Which is what we all were. So what does it look like? What does this redemption look like? It's interesting that the, the authors of scripture, the apostles, as they talk about it and share with us what they've learned from Christ, they break it down in three ways. They say, number one, it's a moment in time. That there's, a, there's an aspect of salvation that comes in a moment in time. It's that moment when you pray the prayer. It's that moment when you believe, which may or may not be the same moment, by the way. But at whatever moment you actually believe, which may be evidenced by a prayer that you pray. Whatever moment you're trusting in that account, whatever moment you say yes, from the moment you say yes, there's a redemption that occurs. It's a moment in time. There's all sorts of verses in the New Testament which say things like, you passed from death to life. They put it in past tense, right? They say, when you believed, you became this. You received this. It's a moment in time, period. But the authors of uh, Scripture also talk about it as a continual and present cleaning. They also say there's something happening right now. Now, it's important to understand they're all about this promise of complete redemption, but there are different aspects of it. So they're not confused. They're not saying that it didn't happen in the moment in time and it's only still happening. They're saying something happened in a moment in time. Something is continually happening for us. And then they go on to say something will happen in the future. So it's interesting the gospel is spoken in terms of time, which is, which is a limitation we're under and God is not. But in terms of living in time as we do, the epistle writers speak of it as being something that we can see in the past, if you're someone who has said yes. If not, this is all still in the present, in the future for you, by the way. But if you said yes, there's the moment when the account is filled with money, it just was. There's sort of your present access of that account, which happens on a continuous basis as you begin to pay off the bills, so to speak. And then there's a future moment when you won't even need that account. You'll just always be a gazillionaire. It's a little hard to carry that analogy too far. That's probably the last of that analogy. But, but the point is, there's this moment in time, there's a continuum present cleansing, and there's a future hope. And there are some $50 words for this. So for a moment, I'm gonna share, I often don't share the $50 words, Partly because I don't always know them, let's just be honest. But partly because sometimes they just lead to confusion, but I'm going to, because these words are actually used in scripture. And they're also words that you will hear occasionally. And I want you to understand how I understand scripture speaks to them because there is, I would say, some misunderstanding about it. There's at least some disagreement. I think it's actual misunderstanding. <laughs> so let's talk it through. Let's see what they are. The first thing we have is what's called justification. This is that moment in time. In the gospel, we receive something called justification. We're justified, and it happens at a moment. This is a verse, Romans 4, 25 through 5, 2 says this. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Justification is that forgiveness. It's that pardon. It's, it's God saying to you, all that debt that you've accumulated through your sin, all the condemnation that you've accumulated through your sin, all the sentencing that should come to you, which in this case is a sentence of death, it's all been taken care of. You've been pardoned completely. You've been forgiven entirely. 
And it says this justification has happened because Jesus died for our sins. This is that moment. Remember, we talked about he took our sins upon himself and became the atonement for them. And we became the righteousness of God. He has taken our sins, paid all of the debt, all of the penalty, and then he's been raised to life. And through that, we have become forgiven and pardoned entirely. And from the moment you say yes to the, to the gift of the gospel, this happens and it never goes away. This is where sometimes people will say to me, understandably, they receive salvation. Nothing in their life maybe radically changes. They look the same. Sometimes they act the same. They still do wrong things. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And they will come and say, what, do I, what does this mean? Did, I know Christ died for my sins, but, but I said yes to that, and then I went ahead and sinned. So does his death count for future sins? To which I remind them, all of your sins were in the future from when Christ died on the cross. Right? So for you to worry about this, this moment isn't the issue. It covered all your sins. Scripture is so clear about this. It says amazing things like your sins have been removed from you as far as the east is from the west. It says that our God who forgets nothing, he's all-knowing all and forget, and remembers everything, the one thing he does forget is all of your sins and all your iniquities. Even the Old Testament reminds us, who is a God like you who forgives all our iniquities and pardons all our offenses? This is hard. This is part of the complete redemption that's hard for us to believe. Why? Because we don't know a single human being who is this gracious. The most gracious person you know still falls short of us, don't they? They do a good job. There are people out there who are pretty good at this. They'll let things go, but push them in the right kind of pressure, commit the same offense against them one too many times, and suddenly they'll remember that you've done this before. But not God. God never grows weary. He never grows tired. He never says, well, I, you were justified, but I didn't know how far you were going to take this. See, he did know. He's known all along. Nothing surprises him. When he said that he took care of your sins, he knew all the sins that you still didn't know you were capable of. Interesting. I find, as the years go by for my salvation, I become more and more aware of how big a deal it was. When I first got saved, I thought my sins were okay. They were kind of a big deal, but let's, I was a good kid. In the, in, the, in the scheme of the world, in comparison to the people I know in my life, I was a really good kid. And so when I got saved, there was part of me that thought, yeah, I mean, God didn't have to reach too hard. <laughs> he didn't have to travel too far. He didn't have soap, you know, a little bit of soap. Behind the years, you know, didn't take a lot. The more I've been a Christian, the more I've realized I am capable of anything. Justified. We've been justified. It happened in a moment in time and it sticks with us. It goes on, another verse says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not some, not a little bit, but none. When you approach God in Christ, when you approach God and you've said yes to that gift, it's like going to the bank and the bank will never at any point say, oh, that $100 million you had yesterday, it's all gone today. Because in the case of the gospel, you can't even spend it all if you try. In fact, Paul says that. At one point, Paul preaches the gospel this way so aggressively that he anticipates that people will ask him the following question. He speaks of the grace of God so expansively. He says that the more you sin, the more grace you get, he actually says. The more you spend of your account, the more money gets deposited into it. 
to which he anticipates someone reasonably saying, well, wait a minute, should we then sin more so that we'll get more grace? You could see that. Shall I spend more of my money so I can get more in my account? And it's interesting the way Paul answers that is he doesn't back up. He doesn't say, whoa, 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 that's not what I meant. He says, well, yeah, you can't out God's grace no matter what you do. And then he gives them a different reason. He says, but that doesn't really make any sense. It won't make you happy. It won't give you what you want. It won't be good for you. Well, it just doesn't make any sense. That question doesn't come from the place of someone who actually understands how big the grace of God is. It comes from somebody who is still looking for something they think they need to do that the grace of God cannot do. That's Paul's answer. You're just confused. But he doesn't say, I was wrong about that. No, he continues to say, you cannot out God's grace. Martin Luther is uh, quoted as having said, and I think this is true, although it's a little hard to track some of these quotes down, but, but uh, Martin Luther is, is uh, reputed to have said once to somebody, sin boldly. Sin boldly. And the reason he's reputed to have said this sin boldly is because it was someone who was saying to him, you know, I, I, I just don't understand the grace of God. And Martin Luther looked at him and they talked about their life a little bit. He said, you work really hard to do everything right, don't you? And they said, yeah, and I'm pretty good at it. And Martin Luther said, that's your problem. Sin boldly so that you can see how big the grace of God is. Now, I'm not actually recommending that you go out and commit heinous sins, but I think Martin Luther's point was similar to Paul's. If you think you can out-sin the grace of God, you're just wrong. If you restrain yourself because you're afraid of going too far with God, you're just wrong. That's not the reason to do it. When I do my 10-hour conference where I talk about this, one of the things I say to people is, if you are doing the right thing in order to earn God's grace, then you should just stop doing the right thing. Because it's a trap and a lie. So we're justified. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what happens at justification? This is one of the most important things. Remember, this is a moment in time. It happens at the instant you say yes. The question to ask is, what is involved in that? What are the things that we really have? And I'm going to give you a list of things that I call tags. T-A-G-S. And here's why I call them tags. Some of you have heard me share this before. Tags are things already given at salvation. And the reason I think it's important to know the tags <laughs> is because Christians spend way too much time Actually, any time would be too much. But we waste far too much of our life trying to gain things that have already been given to us at salvation. It's like you had, I lied, I'm going back to the analogy again. It's like you had $100 million in your account and you went to work at a job you hated because you thought you needed the money. That's fine to go work. But I'm talking about working at a job only for the money. You go work at McDonald's for $11 an hour. It's probably more than that now, but whatever it is, you go work at McDonald's for $15 an hour because you think you need the money and you hate it. And it would make sense for somebody to come along to you and say, you are wasting so much of your day working at McDonald's because you don't need the money. If you want to work at McDonald's because you love it, that's different and weird. I worked at McDonald's. I'm allowed to say that. But if you, if you want to work at McDonald's because you think you need the money and you got $100 million in the account, it's fair to say to you, Man, do something more productive with your life. Well, it's the same with the gospel. We spend so much of our time trying to earn things that we already have. And I think God says to us, that's a waste of time. So what are those things? What are the tags? What are the things that are part of justification that we've been given? Number one, we've been given a new intimate relationship with God. 
as we've been forgiven and pardoned, it leads, says scripture, to peace. By the way, a lot of times when scripture talks about peace that we get in the gospel, a lot of us think that means an internal sense of comfort. Sometimes it does. Most of the time it does not. Most of the time when it talks about the peace that we get through salvation, it's talking about the fact that we're no longer at war with God. We're now at peace with him. Remember the Garden of Eden when we looked at the fall and the curse and that horrible moment where they hide from God? And he says, where are you? Because of their sin, their shame, it helps them, it, it prevents them from being intimate with God. And then throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we're told about how much distance there is between us and God. The gospel tells us that distance is erased. It says now you can enter the Holy of Holies. You can go straight to the source. Approach the throne of grace with confidence and boldness, not because you never make a mistake, because you still do. To say that you've been forgiven and pardoned, that you have a perfect, intimate relationship with God, is not to say that you will never sin again. We'll get to that in a second. You might ask why not. It's a good question. But that is not what this is about. This is about the fact, and it is so people, some people really hate it when I say this, because they think it's giving people license to sin. Hang with me. I think when you sin, you do yourself a disservice. Yeah, that's what I said. I think you do yourself a disservice. We'll get to that in a second. But it is not wrong to say with complete clarity that when you have said yes to the salvation and been justified, there is not an act you can commit, there is not a sin you can perform that will make God run from you or turn his back on you or condemn you again. If that makes you uncomfortable, that's kind of good because it means you're actually starting to hear me. It is amazing to me that the gospel Paul preached sounded just this radical, so much so that he had to protect himself and say, now, I understand your next question is, well, so you're saying we should sin more so that we get more grace. You're saying that whatever. You're saying that my, right, my relationship with God doesn't depend on my behavior? Yes. I am 100% saying that. I'm trying to be super clear. <laughs> there have been so many preachers, so many sermons, so many pastors over the years that have not been clear about this. Let's just be honest. That have said, probably many of them with good motivation, with a desire to help their congregants live a good life and reflect the glory of God in the right way, they have thought that the way to motivate them is to say, be careful, you'll hurt your relationship with God if you behave in the wrong way. And I'm here to tell you, Paul, Peter, James, John, never once said that. Not even a little. Not even for a second. And if you're starting to get afraid that if you believe this, you're going to do all the wrong things, then again, hallelujah, because Paul knew the people he was speaking to might think the same problem. So you're hearing the gospel the way Paul presented. And we're not done. <laughs> but I want you to know, this relationship with God, this intimacy with God. We play games with this too. I've, I've heard a teaching, I've heard teaching several times from different pastors which say that, yes, your salvation is assured. Yes, your relationship with God is assured. And, but everybody has a certain amount of cup that they can fill of intimacy with God. And that some people's cup will be smaller. So when you get to heaven, you'll all be filled with intimacy with God. But some of you, that'll be a bigger cup. And some of you, it'll be a smaller cup. And I see the confusion on your faces. And that's how you should feel about that particular <laughs> That is such a, a twisting and a finagling to try to 
to try to still convince people they need to behave better for the purpose of their relationship with God. The truth is when you get to heaven and Jesus stands there and welcomes you into the, the pearly gates, who knows if that's really going to be the case, but when he, wel he will welcome you. I'm just not sure about the whole pearly gates thing. But he welcomes you in through the pearly gates. You do not need to fear that he is going to look at you and say, yeah, you're, you're good. You're in the zero. You get to sit at the kids' table. Yeah, yeah, you get a communion-sized cup of intimacy with God. Glad you got used to it in all those church meetings. <laughs> Didn't know that's what we were prepping you for. Your banquet is a wafer. No, it's not going to happen. That is not going to happen. A lot of us think that that getting to heaven is going to be like getting a backstage pass to a, a concert where big fans are, a band that we really love. That it's kind of cool, but you're not really part of the band. But guess what? You are as much part of the band as Paul. And you know who said that? Paul. <laughs> you know what Paul says about himself in relation to you and everyone else? Because I'm probably the least of all of us. Because I tried to kill everybody who went for Christ. <laughs> You think you got sins you got to believe that God can overcome? New intimate relationship, forgiveness, pardon, peace. What else? What that comes, that's a moment in time. You're not working towards that. You're not earning that. That's a tag. That's a thing that's already been given. Number two, what else do we receive? We receive a new identity. This is a tricky one. This is what I spent an hour and a half on in a conference. So we're just going to really skim the surface of this. But it is true that in scripture, it talks about the fact that we have life that we did not have before, that we went from death to life. Our very self became something that it wasn't. Paul talks about we now are a new man. He doesn't say the old man fights with the new man. The old man's locked up in the prison and powerless, but we can give him power. He says the old man is dead, dead, crucified with Christ. In fact, he's very specific. He says, in the same way that Christ Jesus was crucified, so too were you. So if you read that to mean that your old man was just made a little bit less powerful or just looked like he was dead, then you're saying that Jesus Christ didn't actually die. Because Paul says you died in the same way. There's a new man. You have a new self. You are not who you were before. And a lot of you say, but I feel exactly the same. That's okay. You know why that's okay? Because your emotions are not your definition of who you are. Your perception is not who you are. That's a different thing we'll get to in a second. But the very you that is you changed. You've been made righteous. You are a saint. You're a saint. You know, Paul uses the phrase saint. He reserves it only for specific people. You know who the specific people he reserves it for? Anybody who said yes to the gospel. Not people who said yes to the gospel and then lived especially good lives. Anyone who said yes. In fact, it's fascinating to me. Go read the book of 1 Corinthians, and you'll notice two things if you pay attention. One is you'll notice that the church in Corinth was awful. I mean, horrible. At one point, he's like, yeah, there's a guy there sleeping with maybe his mother, maybe his stepmother. We're going to hope stepmother. Even that, though, right? We're hoping. That's, that's like a little better. There's a guy sleeping with his stepmother, and Paul's problem with the Corinthians isn't just that he's doing it, but he's like, you guys are all proud of it. You guys are actually pumping him up like it's a good thing. But you know what he keeps calling the Corinthians, even as he's telling them about these horrible things they're doing? Saints. Holy ones. Children of God. 
righteous. This is another moment where I'm going to say something I hope will make you a little bit uncomfortable. Remember when I said your behavior cannot affect your relationship with God now? Well, now I'm going to tell you this. Your righteousness has nothing to do with how you behave. Well, that's bizarre. That's bizarre. That is not how we've learned to think. Am I saying it doesn't matter what you do? I'm not. We'll get to that. What I am saying, your righteousness has nothing to do with how you behave. It has everything to do with Christ. Our righteousness is in Christ. We've been made holy. We've been made right. We've been made saints. Our spirit is not compatible with God. That's why we can have the intimate relationship. You have to understand these two can't be separated. See, God could have just forgiven us our sin, but if we were still wicked, evil people, he still couldn't hang out with us. And when we all got to heaven, the problem wouldn't be that we'd be disappointed about where we sat. The problem would be that God wouldn't be there. He would have had to go somewhere else. But he made us new, and he made us righteous, and he cleansed us. And guess what? This happened at a moment in time. You received the righteousness of God when you said yes. Did your behavior change? Probably not. Some people it does, but not very much. And some people it doesn't at all. Frankly, mine didn't at all because I was already a good kid. And I thought that's all I needed to be. But your righteousness changed. Again, I, I, I can't go into details, but honestly, and I'm not just saying it's tough promotion. Actually, I actually think it's a pretty good resource. I wrote a book called The Hidden Life, which goes into this in detail. If you want to read it, read it. I'll send you a free copy. Everybody in my church gets a free copy. If you don't have one, let me know. I'll send you one. Number three, a new citizenship. We become part of a, of a country, of a kingdom. Kingdom of light, kingdom of heaven. These are some of the phrases used for it. We become part of the kingdom of God. It's not something we have to earn. You're not going to get to heaven and have to go through the immigration process. You're going to get there, and Jesus is going to say, welcome. You've been a citizen since the day you said yes. Number three, a new purpose. You actually have a reason for living now. You have a why in your life. You have a purpose. So many people spend their whole life trying to find a purpose, don't they? And even for Christians, sometimes it's hard for us to understand and connect our purpose, but you have one. There are a lot of ways to think about it. I'll tell you what some of the ones Scripture says. First one's really interesting. Other of Hebrews says, your purpose is to rest. How that? I bet most of us aren't very good at that purpose. He says, your purpose is to rest in Christ. It's to stop striving and rest. Maybe that isn't enough or doesn't make sense to some of you. Well, let's put it another way, which might be a little better. Your purpose is to share the good news. You have learned the most important thing about the entire universe. Think about everything we've been talking about for the last several weeks. There's this huge, incredible cosmic plan, and you know it. How many people want to understand why the universe is the way it is? How it works? How can they be better? How can they get better? How can they connect with the universe, with the God of the universe? Whatever's in their head, there's something bigger they want to be part of. You actually know it. And by knowing it, you have this purpose, which is huge. Please do not hear this as a burden and a duty to which I, as your pastor, will send the church police out to make sure that you're speaking evangelistically to enough people. There is no church police. But you have a purpose. Because who else in the world can tell people what the universe is about if not those of us who actually know? 
who else can tell people how to reach God if not those who know that God reached us? You have a purpose just by virtue of having heard it. If somebody gave to you the cure for cancer, by virtue of receiving it, you have a purpose. Tell people. <laughs> it's that simple. Now, is your purpose to persuade or convince or force people? No. No. None of that. If you have the cure for cancer, you are not obligated to make everybody believe you have the cure for cancer, but I do think you're at least obligated to tell people. Again, what does this look like? How do you do it? Lots of confusion, lots of discussion about it. I'm not getting into that. I'm just saying that's a purpose. There's a mission to it. It's not a duty. It's a purpose. It's a mission. We are part of something huge. We know something. And God, one of the, you think about it. One of the only reasons God left us here after we said yes to salvation was probably so that other people could learn from us. Because otherwise, why not just take us to heaven right away? What can't he do better there? Well, that leads to the third one. Our purpose is to reflect God. That goes back to Genesis. What was the purpose of Adam and Eve? To represent God on the earth? Well, here it is again. Bring a little light to the world. Bring a little beauty to the world. A few weeks ago, I mentioned that, that we, there was a, a homeless gal that my family had run into, and we weren't able to help her. And that was really hard on my, one of my kids. And, and my son was just saying, I don't, he was just feeling like, what's the point? if this kind of thing exists in the world and I can't change it. And he even put it in terms of purpose. I thought I knew what I needed to do, but God's not telling me and I don't see how it's helping. And I tried to explain to him, I tried to say, look, what you did tonight was for a little brief moment, somebody knew they weren't alone. For a little brief moment, somebody knew you'd care. For a little brief moment, you brought, a, not to sound too hokey, but you brought a little beauty and a little light into the world that didn't exist before for this individual. That is our purpose. Because that's what God does. Because that's who God is. And by the way, I don't think that's very different from sharing the good news. When I talk about it, I think I think I far rather see people doing that than, than sharing a particular phrase or word that they learned and hoping that people accept it. Especially today, when actually a lot of Americans heard the words of the gospel, but they really need to see the life of the gospel. I'm not saying those kick those are mutually exclusive. You can certainly do both. All right. And a new family. Oh my goodness. Wanting to belong drives so much of the human race, doesn't it? I mean, I really think it does. Our desire to be long, to know that we fit, it is it is one of the weird things as a as a father of seven children. It is a weird thing that most of our kids, not all of them, some of this is probably personality and nature bound and not nurture, but but it is a weird thing that most of our kids have at some point said to us, I am the oddball. I am the black sheep in this family. I am just, I don't fit in this family. Everybody else thinks exactly the same except me. And it is so hard to explain to that child. You know, one way you all fit is you all say the exact same thing. In, in a really practical way, one of my kids said, you guys all listen to the same kind of music. And my head exploded. Because that's not even close to truth. Lorian likes to listen to, to, to Rat Pack music. She, li she listens to things and watches things from before she was born. Lee's husband's in a punk band, and I think she liked it. I like Christian music. Unabashedly. <laughs> she's not sure. Unabashedly. My wife likes 
Black Sabbath. We love to say that. <laughs> I mean, she doesn't want to do it aggressively, but it's part of her. It's part of her repertoire of things she likes. <laughs> ACDC. Sorry, I got the wrong the wrong metal band there. <laughs> My point is, when when this when this person said that, you all listened to the kind of music. I was like, name it. What is the music that we all like? It is, but it is such a it is such a desire to belong, isn't it? We we all know we just want to belong. I think this is even why it's one of the real advantages for people about therapy is they go and they get a name and they get a try. You are codependent. Great. Now I know where I fit. Right? You are even even alcoholics. I, I'm not opposed to any of this therapy or alcoholics anonymous, but one of the power. Part of the power behind Alcoholics Anonymous is finding out you're not alone. There's such a desire to belong. We have a family we belong to. You may not avail yourself of it. You may not go to church, but guess what? From the moment you say, yes, you are a part of the body of Christ. The body of Christ is not reserved for people who live like they should. It's something you become part of by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You become part of the temple of God that we all together make up. You become, says Peter, part of God's holy people. You're not just an individual in your new identity. You're now part of a group. You're part of a family or a body. And you're part of a kingdom with a purpose and an intimate relationship with the Father. So I spent a lot of time on justification because I want to be really clear. That moment in time matters. That happened. Pursuing these things. Now, pursuing a better understanding of these things, pursuing a connection with these things that actually are here, of course that makes sense. Because we don't all feel we have all these. But pursuing these things, trying to get more intimate with God, trying to make God like you more, trying to become more a part of the family, trying to make yourself fit in better, trying to, to create a purpose, trying to, to form a citizenship that's more valuable than the kingdom of God, trying to make yourself into a better, better person than you think you are, that's all a waste of time it's all been done these are tags things already given in salvation if you're challenged good look into these things the second thing is sanctification this is the continual and present cleansing so those are the things that happen in a moment in time part of what's confusing is that some things didn't change at a moment in time the way you think the way you behave the way you feel the habits and addictions that you undergo. Some people are blessed and God frees them from some things right at the moment of salvation. And a lot of those testimonies are big and we hear them a lot, right? We hear those people who are drug dealers and drug addicts and God cleansed them like that. And praise God, hallelujah, God can be that miracle. It doesn't always happen that way. In fact, I'm not sure it even often happens that way. I think the reality is we get saved and maybe our life looks the same for a bit. Now, I think there is a guarantee in Scripture that because of all those things that change, that there is a continual and present cleansing. There is progress and there is movement. But it may not look like you thought it would look. And it, may, and it definitely may not be as fast as you want it to be. And here's the surprising thing. It's not your responsibility. Remember, this present and continual cleansing is part of the promised complete redemption from God. It's not part of the exhortation that God says to you to do something different than you were doing before. There are exhortations to do different things. 
But again, understand this cleansing is a promise from God. In fact, just so you know, I'm not making this up. First Corinthians 1 says this. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. So I say to you, as Paul does sometimes, stand firm in Christ. But then Paul reminds you, who makes us stand firm in Christ? God. <laughs> he anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. You hear that? The Holy Spirit, again, is not a conditional uh, resident. You can't evict him. And he won't move out. This says he is spirit has been put in our hearts as a deposit. That's the down payment guaranteeing the full payment is coming. It will be completed. God does not welch on his debts. And he is putting this in terms of a debt that he has on you, not a debt that you have with him. Do you hear that? Many of us think that our sanctification is a debt that we owe God. He did so much for us in the justification, and now we have to cleanse ourselves because that's what we do to pay the debt. If we're paying a debt, it's not grace, friends. If Tim Cook said, I put $100 million in your account, and now you got to work the rest of your life to pay it back, I think I'd say no. <laughs> no. This is not a debt we have with God. This is a debt God has with us. That should blow your mind. He's the one who put down a deposit. He's the one who's guaranteeing complete payment. He's the one who makes us stand firm. He's the one who owns us and therefore is responsible for seeing this through. Again, I'm not saying it doesn't matter what you do. We're going to read a verse which tells you that it matters what you do. But if you're doing what you do because you think you have to do it in order for sanctification to be complete, then I'm sorry. Once again, you're wasting your time. Think about this verse. I love this. Romans 12 says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and prove what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. First pass through this verse, which is actually Romans 12, 1 and 2. But first pass through these verses sometimes leave people thinking what I'm supposed to do. He says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, so I need to work harder to make myself holy and pleasing to God. And then he says, don't conform to the pattern of this world, so I need to stop being the way I am, but be transformed by the renewing of God. I need to become something else. That's how it's easy to read this verse, and that is completely backwards from what this verse actually says. Let me show you why. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of what? Okay, not in view of your need to work harder, not in view of your wretchedness, right? And in view of means keeping in mind. This is like an idiom, but it literally means keeping this in mind. Now, what you don't know, but I'm about to tell you, you may know, but if you don't, I'm about to tell you, is that this therefore precedes 11 chapters before it. You could have figured that out. This is Romans 12. I think the therefore refers to all 11 chapters. If you really want to know what the therefore is about, he's saying, everything I took 11 chapters to explain leads me to say this. But if you just want a shorthand for what the first 11 chapters are about, he tells you. God's mercy. 
Therefore, keeping in mind God's mercy as I've laid it out for you, remembering the gospel and everything I shared with you, remembering the justification that has come to you, that you've already been given and you don't have to work for. In light of that, remembering that, offer your body as a living sacrifice. And I want you to hear the particularity of the phrase body. It's not a word Paul uses often. When he wants to say self, he says self. He doesn't say offer yourself as a living sacrifice. He says offer your body. Your body is a particular part of you, but it is not the full capacity of you. If we believe a body is all we are, then we're in trouble because someday we die and that body's gone. <laughs> so as Christians, we already believe the body is not us. It's a shell, right? It's a tool. And this is what he's saying. In view of God's mercy, that he's already transformed you. He's already made you holy. He's already made you righteous. Now offer your body to follow this newness. So he is asking them to live. To, 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 to have their body live out the holiness of who they are. He's not saying it doesn't matter, but notice he's not saying offering your body will make you holy and pleasing. He's saying offering your body as a living sacrifice is holy and pleasing, and he doesn't say this is how you become sanctified. He says what? This is what? Worship. This glorifies God. It doesn't make you more holy. That's so important. Why does it matter what you do? Because it glorifies God. Because it glorifies God. Because it's the way you worship God. Because it is the way that you express and say, God, you've done so much for me, but I'm not earning it. I'm just loving you. So what you do matters, but it's your body. He's saying, offer this thing, this, this aspect of you, but it's not all of you. But then, get this, I love this part. Again, just like I don't often give you $50 words, I rarely give you Greek lessons for two reasons. One, my Greek is... I can read the Greek New Testament, but it takes me a long time. It's, it's, it's rusty and slow and takes a lot of effort. So I'm not, I'm not an expert. But the other reason is because most of the time when you pull up a scripture in, in, in any of the current modern translations, you know, when someone pulls up a scripture and they're like, now in the Greek, here's what it says. Nine out of 10 times, the answer is it says exactly what it says in the English because our translations are honestly that good. That's just the truth. Anyone who tells you that you can't read the actual text if you're reading English is either mistaken or they're just trying to control you a little bit by making you think that you're smarter than you. <laughs> the reality is the translations we have today are so good, so good, that what you read is what is there. However, occasionally, knowing the Greek words can help overturn misconceptions that we've built out. I'm going to give you one example today. He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. When we hear that, what we think is stop being who you are, right? We are part of the world, so we need to, now we need to stop being who we are and try to pretend to be somebody else, which is a losing proposition. Because you can only be who you are. And deep down, you know that. You can try to fake it for a while, but it'll feel fake, and you won't like it. This doesn't say that. It says the opposite. The word conform, it's the word sunschematizo in Greek. See, I probably pronounced it wrong, because I already told you my Greek is rusty. I can read it. I can't speak it. But in the Greek, that word means, it's the word that's literally used for masquerade. Masquerade. In fact, at one point it says, even the devil conforms as an angel of light in order to deceive you. So the word conform doesn't mean be who you are. The word conform means to pretend to be someone you're not. The masquerade is to pretend to wear a mask that is not who you are. So when he says don't conform to the pattern of this world, what he's saying is stop pretending you're just part of this world because you're not. He's not saying stop being who you are. 
He's saying, start being who you are. You've been justified. In view of God's mercy and the justification that's happened, quit pretending that you're just like everybody else. Quit pretending. And if you don't think that's true, let's go to the next word. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And we think, well, transform must mean to be changed somehow into something better. The word is metamorphomai, like metamorphosis. And that might even make you think, yeah, see, it is about being changed. But let me tell you where else this word is used. There's something called the transfiguration. Jesus goes up on a mountain with his apostles. And he goes up on a mountain and it says he is transformed. In front of them, he is metamorphized. He is transfigured, is the way some of us translate it. Which is just a made-up word to try to capture this idea. Because what it really means is removing a mask. It's the opposite of masquerade. It means what happened is Jesus was divine before he went up on the mountain, but they didn't see it clearly because he was wearing a mask of humanity. And when he went up on the mountain, he took off his mask of humanity, and they were able to see it was God. And you can tell because they freak out and say, dumb stuff. We don't get into that. But they don't know what to do with it. They're like, what is happening? Not to mention that Elijah and Isaiah show up, and that's also pretty bizarre. <laughs> yeah. I think we would all respond badly. I'm just telling you, none of us are prepared for that moment, so I give them a lot of room. But the point is, the verse here says, stop wearing a mask and trying to be part of the world you're not part of, and instead, remove your mask and show everybody who you truly are. See, when we sin and we act like the rest of the world, Satan would love us to believe we're doing that because that's who we are. Paul's reminding us the mercy of God, the grace of God is filled with power. And it has actually changed who you are, and you are no longer that person, so stop living as if you were. I've used an example a lot. If you hang around with me long enough, you'll hear this illustration. I'm going to do it very fast. And if you need to brush up on it, you can read that book. It's in that book, and you can find another sermon where I talk about it. But it's like what's happened is it's like we were pigs, literal pigs, oinking, grunting, rolling the mud, eating slop pigs. And then a magician came along and changed us into human beings but we still thought we were pigs. So we continue to roll in mud and eat slop until someone comes along and says to us, you're not a pig, you're a human being, you should act like it. And that's what happened at the gospel. We were transformed inside, but in this case, we still look like pigs. <laughs> we still look the same. So we still behave the same way we used to because we think we have to. And if as believers, if we come to each other and we say, you need to stop acting like a sinner because you're a sinner and you should stop, we can't ever get out of that trap. But what Paul does is he comes along to us and says, you should stop acting like a sinner because you're not. Because you're holy. See, when Paul, when they say to Paul, shall we sin more so that grace will increase, his answer to them is actually no, because that's not who you are. I mean, you can, but that's like a man rolling in the mud like a pig. It just doesn't make any sense. It's inappropriate and unnatural. See, if you've said yes to the gospel, here's, here's the big thing. Sin is not natural. We think it is, but there's a difference between habitual and natural. Sin is not natural. Give you another verse about this. It says, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. What teaches us to say no to ungodliness? What teaches us to live self-controlled lives? What leads us to become people eager to do what is good? Is it the law? 
Is it the accountability of your church or your group? Is it your efforts? Is it the list you've made of how you're going to get better? It's the same grace of God that brought you salvation. One more. For this, I just want to give you verses so you can see I'm not making this up. It says, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, to goodness knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. All right. Well, that just defies everything I just said, right? Because <laughs> here he is saying, do these things. Be better. Let's keep reading. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's no better. Now he not only told us we need to grow in these things, but he told us they need to be increasing all the time. And you could read that and say, well, that's sanctification. And it is. This is sanctification. This is what sanctification looks like. But that sounds like it's on us. What about everything Dave just said? About grace, about faith. Keep reading. But whoever does not have them, what? All these qualities in increasing measure. Okay? So it's like, this is our goal. This is what sanctification should look like. But if you don't have them, what's the answer? Work harder? No? The answer is this. Whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind. By the way, Peter has an act like Paul for being not only redundant, but ridiculous in his redundancy sometimes. I think if you're blind, being nearsighted is just a, like, who cares? But he's like, you're nearsighted and blind. It's like you can only see what's on the front of the tip of your nose, literally, right? That's the metaphor. It says, whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind. But what does he mean by that? They don't realize how wretched they are. They don't realize how hard they need to work. No, he says this, forgetting they've been cleansed from their past sins. Take out everything in the middle. He says, make every effort to grow. That's what increasing measure means. Let's be honest. It just means growing, right? Make every effort to grow. And if you're not growing, what's the culprit? You've forgotten that you've been cleansed. You've forgotten that you've been cleansed. Back to First Romans 12, 1, it says the renewing of our mind is part of our sanctification. Really, this is, this is weird, but true. Part of sanctification is simply becoming more and more confident in the justification. The more you believe in the holiness that God has granted you, the new life you have, the more it is that you'll grow in these things. So for those of you who are like, man, if I really immerse myself and cling to that, if I really have full confidence that God is doing it, then I'll become licentious. Peter disagrees with you. So does Paul, so does James, so does John, so does the author of Hebrews. And I, I can be so bold, I think so does God judging on his creatures. <laughs> it is interesting this could go two ways. Forgetting they've been cleansed from their past sins. I've seen both. You have some people who actually forget they had past sins, right? They're like me. I was a good kid. It took me a while to realize that I actually needed the redemption as much as I did. And my growth was stalled as long as I thought I didn't really need it that much. That would be forgetting I've been cleansed of past sins. But I've also seen an awful lot of people who just forget they've been cleansed. They wallow in their sins. And remember, when he says past sins, he really means everything. Even if to you it's a future sin. It's all the same from the cross. You forget you've been cleansed from your sins. There is something very clear that our sanctification, it kind of flows. God's going to do it. 
It's guaranteed. I don't think you can stop it. But it kind of flows better. It kind of works better. You'll kind of see the increasing measure of your growth to the degree you are convinced of the justification that happened. Then it's all part of the package, that it's a promise guarantee. And that leads us to glorification, which is our future hope. He says this, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So here's how you can think of it. What's happened in a past a moment in time is something the scripture calls our spirit or our heart. Our very essence, our very nature has been redeemed and transformed. We have become new identities and part of a new community and part of a new citizenship. Our sanctification is kind of the renewing of our minds and the changing of our behavior and our emotions, which again happens, God guarantees it will happen, but we work better in that process if we remember the justification. And so our lives change and our works change and our behavior changes and our emotion changes. And then there comes a moment at the very end when God, just, it's like he just completes the package. He's like, well, your spirit's been changed and all that internal stuff in your mind's been changed and now your body's gonna go with it. And finally, our pig-like bodies are no longer pig-like bodies. They may look similar, but guess what? They'll be perfect. And the point of all this is at the moment of this glorification, we're perfect. How weird is that? <laughs> but that's the promise of complete redemption, isn't it? Not partial redemption, but perfect redemption, complete. At that moment, we're perfect. Our very bodies will be changed. It's like that final piece. Our heart is transformed first permanently and forever at the moment of salvation. Our minds and emotions and behaviors are transformed slowly through our lives as we learn to live and think and trust in the Father as Jesus did. And then finally, our bodies, and I suppose whatever leftover sanctification there is, right? I mean, I don't, I don't know how that exactly works. Some people, when they die, it seems like they didn't get very far along the sanctification road. So God can do all that then too. I, I don't know exactly how that works. But it's all completed at death or at Christ's return, and then we'll be made perfect. So this is our salvation. It's a promise of complete, perfect redemption in Christ for the wicked. It's a moment in time. It's a continual and present cleansing, and it's a future hope. I want to finish with two verses. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father. This is another one of those verses. You read that, and a lot of us jump to, okay, how am I going to be these things? How am I going to grow in the knowledge of God? How am I going to be enduring and patient? How am I going to be grateful? How am I going to be bearing fruit in every good work? I need to work harder because Paul's prayer, his exhortation here is that I work harder, except it's not. That isn't Paul's exhortation or his prayer. Do you see that? He does not say, I pray that you will do these things. He says, I pray that something else will happen. And as that something else will happen, these will be the result. And what is that something else that he prays will happen? That God will fill you with the knowledge of his will. And guess what? Remember, we went through his plan, his purpose, his will. What is the knowledge of his will? It's the gospel. Paul's not talking about anything else. He's not like I'm asking that God will let you know what you're supposed to do tomorrow. <laughs> He's not. 
He's saying, I'm asking that God will reveal the mystery of the gospel to you with all wisdom and understanding. And again, is he even exhorting them to learn this? Is he exhorting them to find this? No, he's simply letting them know. I'm praying that God will do this. And as he does this, the rest of this happens. And if you're still not convinced, let's read the end of the verse. Giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you. Who qualified you? You? Uh-uh. Guess again. Who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light? All these things we've talked about are all wrapped up in here, aren't they? For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's the whole, whole salvation package right there. And who initiates it? Who completes it? And who's responsible for it? And what is the only thing that if there is any hint of responsibility in here for us, what is it? It's to receive the understanding and knowledge of the mystery of the gospel so that we will bear fruit. Do you see that? Because the pursuit of this ministry of knowledge of the gospel is very different than a pursuit of bearing fruit. And sometimes when you pursue the fruit, uh, the result of something, and you miss what's supposed to lead to the result, you miss it all together. So there's a desire here, yes, from Paul, that we would live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, but it's not an exhortation to do so. It's a recognition that the knowledge of his will with understanding leads to this kind of life. The more we understand the incredible grace of God's gospel, the more likely it is we will bear fruit, grow in knowledge, be strengthened in power, have endurance and patience, be joyful, be grateful, and on and on and on. This should be exciting. Do we want to grow? I know you do. Do you want to change? I'm pretty sure you do. I've met very few human beings who don't want to change. And if you don't now, just wait. Someday it'll settle on you. And you'll be like, oh my gosh, I need to change. So you receive the salvation of Christ. And you say yes. And you're changed in an instant. And then what you do from there is you dwell there forever. Paul is very clear. The author of Hebrews is very clear. But the way we live our life after receiving the gospel is identical to the way we receive the gospel. Just believe it. Keep living as if you keep believing. And when you find yourself going awry or you're not growing in increasing measure, figure out what it means to remember that you've been cleansed of your past sins. Figure out how to immerse yourself in the gospel. Pursue that again. It is amazing that so many of us think the gospel was the introductory beginning lessons and that everything that came after that is somehow upon us. And this scripture is so clear that the gospel is a promise of complete redemption. And all we're asked to do is sit there. Rest in that. Keep going back to that. Martin Luther, who said sin boldly, absolutely did say, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. And really, every moment you remember. The angels themselves long to look into these things. Can we do any less? They're impressed, and we so often are not. They're like, well, it wasn't that big a deal. It wasn't that big a deal. You have forgotten you've been cleansed your past sins. And you don't recognize that the sanctification and the glorification are on God, and they're coming your way. If this were really the most important pursuit in your life, and I mean that literally, I have a lot of things in my life that are worth pursuing. My family, you know, financial stability. I'm not saying it's wrong to pursue those things. 
But what's the most important pursuit in your life? If this were the most important pursuit in your life, this mystery of the knowledge of God's will and the gospel in Christ, then there's a lot of ways you can think about that. But if this were the most important pursuit in your life, I feel pretty confident promising you it will change your life. I feel confident based on my own experience. I feel confident based upon the experience of others. I feel confident based upon dozens, maybe, of people who came to me for counseling and all I did was encourage this. And watch them change. Now, more than that, God promises it will change you. There's a verse in 1 John, which I'll just leave off. It says, Behold, what great love the Father has given unto us. Actually, do I have this verse later? I do not. Behold, what great love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called children of God, and such we are. Reminding us that if God says you're a child of God, you are. He's not lying to you, and he's not mistaken, regardless of what you think. But it goes on, and he says, the most amazing thing is that when we see Christ, he says, the world doesn't know who we are, and we barely know who we are ourselves. But when we see Christ, we shall see that we are like, we shall see him as he is. No deception. And we shall see that we are like him. How can that be? Because God promises it. But John then says this amazing thing. Those who have this hope, what hope? That God guarantees you will be like Jesus. That it will have, when you see him, you will not go, oh my gosh, I'm so much not like him. Again, lots of preachers like to tell you that story, right? They like to give you that vision. You're going to see Jesus, you're going to be shocked and ashamed at how different you are from him. That's not what John says. John says when you see Jesus, you're going to be shocked at how similar you are. Because of what God has done. But then John says this, those who have this hope purify themselves just as he is pure. I think, again, John is connecting the idea that if we believe in the gospel, the sanctification works its way through us in a much clearer way. It's interesting, he kind of gets the order wrong, right? It's like a moment in the past, we've been called children of God. Moment in the future, we'll be glorified. But he says the hope in those two things makes that middle ground work better. And let's leave with this benediction. And remember, we will not be here next week. Live with this for a week, though. Man, if you were to memorize this first, you could do a lot worse. That's a really not really great way to say it, is it? <laughs> you should memorize this verse. It's good for you. It would be great for you to memorize this verse. Yeah, I don't know why I said it's funny. Okay. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. We have a, a leaders meeting, and I already ran a little long for when our leaders meeting usually starts, so I, I do want you guys to chew on it and process it, but we're not going to have the little discussion that we sometimes have, the short one. So uh, hold on to it, though, and share with your groups. If you have questions, talk about it in your focus groups. Explore these things. You can, I'm not going to say it that way again. The best thing in life you can do is pursue the gospel. And you think, I've already received it. Well, the best thing you can do is continue to pursue the gospel. And you think, I haven't ever received it. Best thing you can do is pursue the gospel. That's the thing I love about it. It works no matter where you are spiritually. Go with God.
Most churches believe in the value of small groups, but at Focus Church, we are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the Focus Groups. And we believe that you can be part of a Focus Group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at Pastor Mac, M-A-C, underscore at Mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.